Stewart is in. Goblin in alone with Stewart back in. Scores! Over the blue line, space. Philly on near circle, back door feet. What a blocker save by Portillo! Here comes Halliday, left wing, joined by Beck. Halliday will sauce it for Beck, stick with for him. What a goal! For plenty of time and space, walking in near circle to the back end of the slot. Eber beats it, tucks it in. What a goal! Cross ice, D. St. Val has it. Back door shot, what a save! Portillo, it's loose, and another save. Right pad, he's miraculous. Welcome to our house. You're listening to the Fighting Saints Report. Back with another episode of the Fighting Saints Report. Jack Molesky joined by Jim Leitner, and we're still counting down the days to the Saints' main camp. Right now we're inside a month, and we're also maybe right around a month away from the start of uh, the NHL reboot, which would come right back with a 24-team playoff. And that's kind of what we'll be talking about for the majority of this show. It's an NHL-based show because of our guest, Pierre Maguire, a great interview with Pierre talking a lot of things about the NHL reboot. Also went into depth about the uh, the USHL and all the great players that, that have come out of the USHL in the last 10, 15 years. But we got to start with what is becoming a big story um, the last couple years, the NHL draft lottery has not gone the way of the team that you thought it was going to go, especially this year. If you saw last Friday, the NHL had their draft lottery. Detroit, the overwhelming favorite to get the number one pick, and they wind up with the number four pick. And that's where we'll start off this show as we welcome Jim Leitner in. And if you're a Detroit Red Wings fan, it was a terrible season, and somehow the offseason made it worse. Yeah, it just kind of. The whole draft lottery, even the way it was set up going into Friday night, I wasn't real comfortable with it. And then, you know, you, you turn out and the, the way it turned out on Friday night, I think made it worse, actually. And um, it's it's a situation. This is a this was an odd year, obviously. You know, how do you do this? And, you know, I go back, I think a couple episodes ago, I talked about my suggestion for the draft lottery. Um, would have been to take like maybe the last five years, take the, the team's overall record for the last five years and then not have a lottery, but just have, you know, just go by the team's record over the last five years. If you want to have a lottery, maybe you, the lottery would be, okay, this year it's either going to be the last five years the rec overall record or the last three years the la overall record or the last four years overall record i think that way you just get uh you get the the team that probably needs the most help uh the uh, the number one overall pick and i just think that would have been a better way to go about it because and this is the way it is now with a we don't even know who has the over overall number one pick uh, it's just kind of uh, it's kind of silly to me that they they did that, and I I would have preferred going the 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 route that I had suggested a few episodes ago. Yeah, the the draft lottery. You know, I I don't necessarily mind the lottery itself because I I do think that it it doesn't it doesn't lend then itself to teams completely tanking just to get the number one. Pick. Yeah, and that's something that I don't enjoy in sports teams purposely losing. Uh, the Devils did it a couple of years back, um, but, but purposely losing just to gain a, a top pick 
Um, even if you know you're going to have a bad team, it's kind of a, a disservice to the players and insulting to them that you believe so much. You believe the team is so bad that you're going to even try to make them worse just so you can guarantee that number one pick. Uh, that being said, this year, uh, a little bit different, a lot bit different because of the fact that the season was completely cut off due to COVID-19. <laughs> Uh, and I think the thing that really interests me is that not only is it a random team that hasn't been decided yet that is technically going to make the quote-unquote the playoffs this year that will get the number one pick, but what's interesting to me is just because all these plans are in place, it doesn't mean there's actually going to be a season. So what happens if the playoffs never happen, then who does that number one pick go to? Exactly, exactly. And then, you know, and the one thing that you're going to run into is, you know, you have those teams that are playing in those play-in series, and now there's a real good opportunity for some team to, like you said, to tank. You know, if you know if you want to, if you want to get that overall overall number one pick, well, just lose your first round series, and you got a better, you got a chance. One of those teams, we don't know, we don't know who that placeholder team is that's going to get it, but. You know, to your point about tanking, you know, this is like a, a perfect opportunity for one team to tank, you know, in a season that, you know, it's it's such a disjointed season anyway. You know, I, I'm sure, you know, it's going to be real easy for it. It would be real easy for a team to say, well, this this is a messed up year already. You know, do we do we really want to be playing? Uh, here's our opportunity. We lose in the first round and we get the number one overall pick. So, I mean, to your point about tanking, this is like, this makes it actually worse than, you know, a team tanking over the course of an entire season, I think. Yeah. And when, when you look at the, the teams now, eight teams that will have an opportunity to get that number one pick, each of them will have, <coughs> excuse me, a 12.5% chance to claim that number one pick. So now the odds are, are even for all those teams. It's essentially a roll of the dice to see who will get that number one pick. But yeah, it is really interesting that a team, you know, right now you have a team that has a chance to win the Stanley Cup, but also has a chance to get the number one pick. There are eight teams yeah. that technically have a chance. Now, granted, of those eight teams, realistically, probably only one or two of them are good enough to maybe make a run all the way and win the Stanley Cup. But that's still what you're looking at, a team that could make a run and win it all. And then if they lose in the first round, they could get the number one pick. So uh, very interesting. I know a lot of people that aren't super thrilled about it. Um, and it's, you know, I think if you're a Red Wings fan, it's it's tough not to be be bitter. But by the same token, it's this happens even when there isn't uh, a shortened season due to a pandemic. There are teams that yeah. should be the number one. Uh, Colorado, a couple years back, they were the overwhelming favorite to be the number one team, uh, number one pick. They dropped down, they drafted number four, and all they got out of it was Kale McCarr. So it's not like you're yeah. suddenly. It's not like you're suddenly not going to get a great player. It just it's a little slap in the face to have been so bad all year and then not get what you expected for being as bad as they were. Yeah. It's just kind of a, like I said, it's just kind of a, you know, the, the, the lottery is kind of a, I don't know. It's kind of a, <clears throat> I never really, never really cared that much for it in the first place, but to your point about tanking, I get it, but you know, it is tough for a team like Detroit where you, you expect to, uh, 
to draft higher. And I mean, I don't think they were tanking by any means. I think they were just bad. And uh, so it's, it is a slap in the face that they're not able to get a, a better pick and, you know, and some other team is going to, is going to get that pick. And, um, but again, I, I do think they're, they're good quality talent uh, in the top, top five, six picks of the draft every year. So you're going to get a good player, but uh, you know, that number one pick, usually there's an opportunity to get a real generational type player. And, you know, I think that's Alex LaFerriniere this year. Um, and I think he could have definitely helped a team like Detroit. Yeah, so Detroit will not get the number one pick. Uh, Los Angeles Kings, they have to be pretty happy. They move up into the number two spot. Uh, and then, you know, if you're the Ottawa Senators, you had a good chance at number one, but you get number three and number five due to that trade with San Jose. So two picks in the top five for Ottawa. They'll have to be thrilled with that as well rounding out the the eight teams in that draft lottery. Then Anaheim is picking six, New Jersey is picking seven, and Buffalo is picking eight. But that team, TBD, to pick number one. And uh, again, it, I think the biggest thing, the biggest, and it's not an issue, just maybe concern that I have with this whole thing is I don't even know if there's a plan in place for that number one pick if, the NHL is unable to restart their season um, because I, right now in the sports world, nothing is a guarantee. I mean, you see the end. No. There are, there are coronavirus cases popping up there. Um, the, the PGA tour has had a couple coronavirus cases, but they're they're They lock out because they're an outdoor sport and it's so much easier to, to social distance with more space out there and, and just to play outdoors versus indoors gives you a lot more room to uh, to be comfortable. But with some of these indoor sports, as we just talked about off this show, it's going to be a lot tougher. And the second that there's one major outbreak, if there is, that could change a lot of things. Well, yeah, you look at the NBA in particular, uh, they're going to Orlando, right in the heart of Florida, which is really spiking in COVID cases. So uh, I think it's going to be real difficult for the NBA to get rolling. And then you know, if the NBA has a trouble getting going, you know, I'm sure they're in really working in concert with people in the NHL offices. So, you know, if the NBA can't get rolling, you know, does the NHL kind of follow their lead and not get started? Now, granted, you know, the NHL is going to be playing in a couple of different hub cities that are in different areas and not, hopefully not in a, you know, in an area where it's really spiking, but uh, still, I think it's going to be a difficult challenge for, for any of these indoor teams to do this. And, you know, the amount of testing they're going to have to do, the, the quarantine they're going to have to do, living in a bubble, I think it's going to be a real challenge. And, and again, I think that gets back to my point where, you know, it, you know, obviously you want to win the Stanley Cup, but, you know, it wouldn't be a bad incentive to say, well, you know, we lost in the first round of the playoffs. Now we get to go home and, uh, resume a little bit more normalcy and get ready for the next, uh, the next season. Yeah. For the NHL, again, I think the, the hope for all sports fans is that we're able to see each league make the, the comeback that they want to with the NBA and the NHL diving into essentially the playoffs baseball doing a shortened season and the NFL, the only league that hasn't suggested that they're really going to change anything with their season, at least in the way that the season is structured they're going to dive right into a full season and with only 16 games in one a week that that might be a little bit easier for them. 
we, we do have a great interview with someone that has way more insight than we do on the NHL. Um, we didn't get too much into the nitty gritty with Pierre Maguire just because uh, he might not be privy to all the information or be able to, to tell us, but we did talk about just the, the process of stopping the season and slowly trying to restart it. Uh, and before we get to that interview with Pierre, I don't know if you saw Jim, but they, they did make the announcement um, for these hub cities and they're going to be two hub cities that what they're going to do is they're only going to allow one broadcast crew each into um, the, the stadiums in terms of camera and technical crew. And then every single announcing crew will have to announce outside of that hub city just through a TV. So you're not going to have any broadcasters on site, which I didn't know at the time I was interviewing Pierre, but uh, that's certainly going to change a lot of things for that profession. Oh, no doubt about it. And it's, it's kind of been interesting. Uh, I've been watching the on ESPN, the Korean baseball league uh, coverage. And those are, it, it's the same way. You have people basically in a home studio uh, doing play by play or, uh, trying to provide any kind of analysis. And uh, it is definitely going to change your perspective on that game because, you know, when you're live and in person, you see so much more uh, than if you're just watching it on a monitor where you're basically just watching it on TV and you're limited to what the cameras show you. Uh, So it is going to be much different. But, uh, you know, I think if you look at some of the guys who are are broadcasting in the NHL, they're such professionals Mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, I think they'll do a really good job and and provide pretty good insight. And, uh, but it is definitely going to be different. And it's, it's not going to be quite as detailed as, as what we're used to watching with the NHL. But uh, like I said, I think a lot of those guys are extremely good Pierre, one of them. Uh, So I think you're going to get a good quality broadcast regardless. Yeah. We're just hoping we have broadcasts. And I think those guys, you know, even though it'll be different, they'd still rather be broadcasting hockey than, than doing nothing in the coming months. So excited to, to hopefully see the NHL back soon. We talked about that a lot with Pierre Maguire. You'll hear that interview coming up right now. And we also, again, talked to, with him a lot about the development that the USHL has seen within their own league and how that's led to great strides in the game of hockey across North America. Right now, Pierre Maguire here on the Fighting Saints Report. And we're joined by a very special guest here today on the podcast. You might recognize him from Between the Benches on NBC's hockey uh, coverage. It's Pierre Maguire, a hockey analyst for NBC Sports Network. And Pierre, thanks for joining us today. Jack, it's a pleasure to be with you. I hope you and yours are safe and sound. And uh, everybody in the Dubuque area is very safe and sound. Yeah, absolutely. You as well, Pierre. Uh, again, really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk some hockey with hopefully hockey right on the horizon. And um, you maybe more so than anyone else we've had on this podcast or in general, are, uh, their life is, is hockey. So what have the last three months been like without hockey, without sports in general for you? Uh, in the last 32 years that I've been in the National Hockey League, it's the longest I've been without being on an airplane. Um, it's the most time I've spent with my wife, uh, in the 22 years we've been married. Um, it's definitely the most time I've spent with my children because they've been away. Uh, my daughter's a freshman in college and my son's been in prep school the last four years and also has played in your league in the USHL. So it's been kind of an interesting time being around my family and actually being able to be a father and a husband. It's been really neat. So the, the season drops off 
right before the most exciting time of the year. I mean, the playoff push is just starting for a lot of these teams. You have so many good races that you're following along. When that stoppage happened, what was the immediate reaction from, from you? And when talking to players and coaches, what was that feel within 24, 48 hours to when they knew the season wasn't going to continue as planned? What a good question, Jack. I was actually doing a game between the Philadelphia Flyers and the Boston Bruins for NBC Sports in the afternoon when things started to look pretty bad. I was actually sitting in the Bruins dressing room talking to Zidane Chara at about 2.30 in the afternoon on game day. He was just, he said he wanted to get to the rink early and just kind of stretch out and get a feel for the game. And it just shows you the intensity level of Big Z. And then it started to filter around down by both dressing rooms that uh, things were not getting very good with the coronavirus around everywhere. And then there was a breaking story out of the NBA. Um, and all of a sudden the guys were like, are we going to be playing in the game tonight? And then obviously the game was played. I did all my interviews as usual. And then the, found out the next day that the league, there was going to be a pause, obviously. So that was really foreign territory I think for everybody in the National Hockey League we just weren't used to that mm -hmm. and most people probably thought it was going to be you know a one or two week thing and then all of a sudden it became you know pretty darn serious and then school started to close and yeah no it became very very serious obviously. I'm sure the discussion then is different because like you mentioned and I felt the same way we're on a bus trip to Youngstown the season gets paused we head right back to Dubuque and I'm thinking okay I'll be here in Dubuque for maybe a week and then things start to sort themselves out. Suddenly I'm back home in Virginia with a season canceled. So then talking to players a week or two weeks after, I mean, how did that mentality shift from hopefully this is a week-long thing to we, we don't know when hockey's coming? Well, when I found out we were on the pause, I actually came up to Boston to come visit my son who was still in prep school. And I was skating with him really early in the morning at a rink that a friend of mine owns. And all of a sudden Brad Marchand walks into the rink. And we start chatting. You know, I've known Brad a long time. And uh, we start chatting. And he says, I wish I can go on the ice. We're not allowed. We're not allowed to go on the ice. We're not even supposed to be in the rink. He was actually bringing his young son to a skating clinic uh, before the rinks got closed in Massachusetts. And he said he'd never gone through anything like it in his life. And he wasn't sure how long it was going to last. And he was really concerned about it because he didn't want to lose his edge. I mean, if you look at the Bruins and the kind of season they were having, Jack, and you look at the way Brad was playing in particular, I mean, he was having a phenomenal, phenomenal year, along with David Pasternak and Patrice Bergeron, could be argued the best line in the National Hockey League. Mm -hmm. So just to give you a case in point about a player, there was an elite player in the league who had no idea what was going on, and he was really concerned about it. When you get the season pause, I mean, what teams do you think were most negatively affected by that pause? You mentioned the Bruins. They had been streaking all season. Were there certain teams that you felt, wow, they were about to get on a hot streak and maybe make a deep run that might have been negatively impacted by this? I, I thought the Washington Capitals were a really good team throughout most of the year. They had a couple little peaks and valleys, but I thought by and large they were pretty consistent. And I thought they were a team that when the pause was coming, they were actually starting to go up. Uh, Tampa Bay was another one. They were starting to really ascend. Toronto was starting to play a little bit better. I think they were encouraged by it. You know, I look at out west, boy, Vegas was playing phenomenal hockey. Edmonton was starting to play better. Um, so I think those were two teams in the West. Vancouver's another one that started to play better. Nashville under John Hines. So I think all those teams that I just talked about, they wanted to keep going. Mm -hmm. um, Jack and they weren't able to. 
when you look at this, you mentioned it was unprecedented. I mean, is there anything that even comes comes close to a comparable for you in, in your time playing hockey, covering hockey, being around the sport? Um, I, I remember uh, 05, 06, you know, the entire year, I call it the nuclear winter when we didn't have hockey. The players kind of knew they were in for the long haul, but it still was, they, everybody thought somebody would blink, whether it be the Players Association or the owners. Nobody ever thought they'd miss an entire year. And then when it got to November and December and nobody blinked, I was working for Canadian TV at the time, and they said, uh, they called me up and they said, you and your partner, Gordon Miller, are going to do the Women's World Championships, the Men Under 18 World Championships, and the World Championships for the men. So we were in Europe for two months. Mm. And that's when I kind of knew this is for real. We're going to miss the entire season. So I've been through it before. Um, when I was coaching in the playoffs with Pittsburgh back in 92, there was a player strike, believe it or not, uh, just before the playoffs. And so we were a little bit late getting to the playoffs. That's a, in 92, by the way is the first time an NHL game was ever played in June. June 1st is when the Pittsburgh Penguins won the Stanley Cup. And the reason why that happened is because of that player strike just before the playoffs started. So I've been through some of these things before, but never because of a pandemic. I've been through SARS. I've been through the bird flu. I've been through all this stuff. And we've never had a cancellation or a pause like we have right now. And when you're looking at, you mentioned the lockout season, how different is this still? Because I'm assuming in that lockout season, not assuming, I, I know that, you know, players were still able to work out. They could even go overseas and, and play in other leagues. And this is a full shutdown where ice rinks are closed. I mean, how many players have you talked to that had big lulls of even being able to do anything hockey related? Well, I'll tell you what, especially in Canada, uh, my 83 year old mother lives in downtown Montreal and good portions of Canada had very major quarantining laws. So a lot of the players couldn't do anything if they had gone home. Uh, another thing that is really important to stress is that guys from Sweden, and I know there was a charter plane that left Nashville with a bunch of Swedish-born players. They went over and they could skate because their country never closed. So some guys actually went back to Sweden and skated. But for good many of them, there was no ice availability. Unless you were an injured player mm -hmm. uh, and had a rehab opportunity, that's the only way you could get on an NHL ice surface. So it's been really tough that way. I do think most of the guys have tried to stay in shape, at least over the first month and a bit. But, Jack, I'll be honest with you, it's going to be hard for a lot of these guys to get back in shape. They're in full-time summer mode. They really are. Yeah, and we'll get into the, the hopeful restart of a season here coming up. But before we do that, I want to backtrack way back. For, for fans that know you between the bench, that's one thing. But I, I want to get through Pierre Maguire's hockey story before NBC, if uh, you'd indulge me a little bit. Uh, you started playing college hockey at Hobart from 1979 to 1982. Take us through the college years as a defenseman. Oh, I loved it. I mean, I was on the first ever varsity team there. I played football, hockey, and baseball in, in college, which is probably a foreign concept to a lot of your <laughs> viewers, but I was able to do it. Um, my body wasn't uh, always able to do it, but I was able to do it, so that was cool. Um, most of my best friends in my life are uh, my hockey teammates from college. Um, we, we did some really good things there. I was really proud of, you know, being part of the first ever program there and to see where the program's gone today to being, you know, one of the better programs at that level in the country um, makes me really proud. So I enjoyed it and I was really, uh, I felt very, very fortunate to graduate from a great institution like Hobart. Was it after you graduated Hobart that you realized that coaching and scouting might be the path for you or while you were playing, did you kind of figure that out? 
Well, I turned pro right after my senior year and I signed with a European team and uh, had a real good first year there and was signed by the New Jersey Devils in the National Hockey League. And uh, I figured out probably middle part of the first training camp in New Jersey. I had been there in the spring after my European season, so finished off the year there. And then I went to training camp and I kind of figured out that I did not want to take the minor league route. I just didn't want to do it. I, you get in so many different physical battles over time. I just, that wasn't the path I wanted to do. So where I figured out I really wanted a coach was um, probably halfway through training camp in New Jersey. So that would have been in uh, 84 where I kind of figured out. And I went right into coaching and never looked back. Did you ever think of doubling back to, to try the football route or was that long gone? By the no, time? that was long. Football <laughs> was long gone. I love football. I mean, I was probably, you know, pretty decent player um I played with some really good players over time but I no, the hockey was what I really wanted to be involved in so when you get your start in coaching take us through those first couple years of I think I've talked to a lot of coaches where they say you know they have a a moment where they realize hey this is exactly what I want to do they they realize that they can make it in coaching when did you have that breakthrough point Right away, I knew it. I loved working in hockey camps. I loved working with children. I loved trying to help make players better. Um, and I wasn't doing it for the money, trust me. Um, I think you probably have gone through the same thing with your broadcast career. Uh, I kind of knew I wanted to do it when the first job I had is I had a meal ticket. Um, I had an apartment paid for. I had a recruiting car. And I made $400 for the year. But I was a substitute school teacher, and I made $50 a day. Um, and that helped get me through. That's when I knew I really wanted to do it. I knew I wasn't putting any money in the bank, but I knew I had the passion to do it. And then the next year I got an amazing opportunity to go to Boston and work with Steve Sterling at Babson College. And we had amazing success there as, as a school and, and as a hockey program. And then I went from there to St. Lawrence where, you know, we were one of the best teams, if not the best team in the country for the two years I was there in Division One. And then I got hired by the Pittsburgh Penguins. So it was a gradual blooming to the NHL but I knew right from the start that I really wanted to do that who were a couple of the the formative figures in your coaching career who who shaped you early on uh I would say Steve Sterling at Babson College who was a you know tremendous player at Boston University and a legendary minor league player um you know for the Boston Bruins organization Um, he had really good numbers in the American Hockey League as a player and then uh, I went up to St. Lawrence and I worked for a living legend in Joe Marsh, who's just a phenomenal person. And um, Joe just had major heart surgeries doing very well. But, you know, I think of Joe often. And then obviously being hired by Scotty Bowman and, and working with Scotty Bowman and the late Badger Bob Johnson and Craig Patrick from uh, hockey, you know, Hall of Fame career type general manager and a legend from uh, the 1980 Olympic team. So, I've been really fortunate to have some amazing role models and people have been really good to me over time. The ultimate goal for anyone in, in hockey, whether it's a, a player, a scout, a coach, a GM, is, is winning the Stanley Cup. You were able to do so as an assistant coach with the Penguins in 1992. What was that season like? How early on did you know that that was going to be a special season? And then when it finally comes full circle at the end, what's the ultimate feeling? You know what? The first one in 91, I was a scout. And I was all over the world. It's kind of an interesting change of how it all happened, Jack. Um, the late Bob Johnson, Scotty Bowman, and Craig Patrick called me up. I was actually over in Sweden. They said, we want you to come back and do all our advanced scouting and run the team meetings before the teams go into the playoff series that they were about to play. So 
I spent the last 10 days of the NHL season watching the Washington Capitals and the New Jersey Devils. It looked like we were going to play one of those two teams in the first round. We eventually got New Jersey in the first round and then played Washington in the second round. And I went back to Europe for a couple of days. Then I came back uh, and got ready for the conference final, which was against Boston. And then finally we played Minnesota in the final. So I was on the road the entire time. But what I found fascinating and really interesting was just doing the breakdowns, not watching anybody but our next opponent. And it was just a phenomenal ex exercise and experience. And so the first cup was the one that I really was like, whoa, this is amazing. This actually happened. And then the late Badger Bob Johnson passed away as a head coach. And I was supposed to be the head coach of our team in Muskegon, Michigan for the 91-92 year. And then I got a call in Muskegon during training camp to meet Scotty Bowman in Toronto. So I flew to Toronto and they said, bring your skates. And I did. And I uh, met him at Toronto Maple Leaf Gardens. And right after the game, we were watching Buffalo play Toronto in a preseason game. He said, uh, you're coming with me to Pittsburgh tonight. You're going to be announced as my assistant coach tomorrow. So that's how it happened. It was kind of a funky deal, but it was really neat. Really, really neat. As a, as a scout, I'm sure that there are a lot of instances where it's really tough to discern, is this guy going to be an NHLer over this guy? But I also know there are definitely instances where you know immediately, this guy's got it, and he's going to be better than a lot of other players. Are, were there a couple players in your scouting time that you knew immediately that they're going to be top-level NHL players for a long time? Oh, yeah. One of the first guys I ever saw in the scouting situation was Derek Lindros. I saw him when he was 15 years of age uh, playing for St. Michael's College School in Toronto. And you, as a 15-year-old playing against 18- and 19-year-olds, he was just running roughshod over them. You could tell right away he was going to be a living legend. Um, watching Peter Forsberg play up in Moto and Ormskoldvik in Sweden, with his line mate, Marcus Naslin. I was part of the management team that drafted uh, Marcus Naslin. We wanted to take Forsberg, but Inga Hammerstrom was a scout for Philadelphia, and they took him really early. I think they took Forsberg at six, and we were picking at 16, I believe. Um, so we took we took his line mate, Naslin, who turned out to be a pretty what good. What a terrible player. consolation prize there. Yeah, pretty good. Um, <laughs> and probably going back to the first draft I ever worked was a 1990 draft. Uh, Yarmer Yager, we took him fifth overall. And what I remember the most about that, um, the night before the draft, Scotty Bowman had just been hired. I had just been hired. And Greg Malone was the chief scout. And we were talking about who we were going to take at five. And they said, are you sure he's the best player? Because I said, Yager's the best player in the draft. And they said, okay, if you're sure, we're all sure. We all agree. And then the next day, I can just do it off of memory. Uh, Owen Nolan went one to Quebec. Peter Nedved went number two to Vancouver. Keith Primo went number three to Detroit. And Mike Ricci went number four to Philadelphia. And then with the fifth pick overall, the Pittsburgh Penguins were proud to select Jaromir Yager. And then the Islanders with number six took a young man by the name of Scott Sissons, who never played. So it just shows you how fickle the draft can really be. It's an amazing exercise. You, you you mentioned that a guy six overall never plays in the NHL. When you're scouting, what are the, what are the small little things that you really try to look at that tell you this guy's going to make it, even though he's not as, as noticeable as a Lindros or a Yager? Yeah. What a good question, Jack. I think the biggest thing is, well, there's two things, character and coachability. I call it CNC. If a player's got character, um, it's going to stand out because we're a sport that has no out of bounds. You run into a wall. Um, you know, people play hard, they play through you, they have a weapon in their hand called a stick. 
they're traveling at a high rate of speed, 25 to 30 miles an hour when collisions happen. Um, it's, a, it's an intensity sport. It's an intimidation sport. So character matters a lot. But a long time ago, I learned as a coach that if a player is not coachable, he can have all the skill in the world. But if he's not prepared to listen and sacrifice, then he's not going to be able to help you become the team you need to be. And he's not going to become the player he can be. Um, the great Jerry York, who's a Hockey Hall of Famer, got in last year, uh, the head coach at Boston College, coach at Clarkson, coach at Bowling Green, coach at Boston College. He once told me, he goes, I really believe in recruiting good people. And I asked him, why is that? And he says, because I know a good person will be receptive to ideas. And because of that, they'll be coachable. And it really does matter. So I think the two things that you really look for when you're evaluating players is character and coachability. I think you mentioned this to me when you came and visited Dubuque last season was that you said a lot of, a lot of scouts are sitting up, up high and watching the game from up top. You like to sit close to the glass because you wanted to see if the players were communicating with each other. How important is that at the next level? It's gigantic, you know, and, and communication because everything goes so quickly right now. If you don't communicate very well and utilize your vocal cords, the buildings are so loud around the league that if you're not yelling and screaming and trying to help your teammate, then it's not going to be very fruitful. And on the bench as well, if players don't communicate well on the bench and they don't listen to their coach, chances are they're going to make a lot of mistakes because adjustments happen all the time in NHL games. So those are two big things, communicating on the ice and communicating and listening off the ice, really important. You mentioned character and coachability, which I'm sure from when you were a scout till now hasn't changed in what you're looking at as a player, but the game has evolved so much. What are certain things scouts look for now that they weren't looking for back when you were a scout? Smaller defensemen can survive in the league now. They couldn't when I was in because of the red line. The two-line pass was in effect, so you could basically tackle somebody in the neutral zone, and there wasn't going to be a whole lot of speed generated, and there wasn't going to be any penalties. But you had to have big guys that can really dominate board play, dominate the slot, and so it was really tough for smaller defensemen to make it. Um, so one of the things I've seen, one of the bigger transitions has been the evolving play of smaller defensemen puck transporters or puck movers is what they call them now. So that's a big thing that's changed. The other thing is the ability of the two-way centermen. Um, maybe it's because of Guy Carboneau got in the Hockey Hall of Fame last year. Maybe it's because of uh, Patrice Bergeron. Maybe it's because of Alex Barkov. Maybe it's because of Anse Kopitar. Um, Jonathan Taves in Chicago. The, the evolving play of the two-way center where they're maybe not gaining the most amount of points, but they're really able to play in every facet of the game. I think that's something that's really evolved. And then finally, the pace of the game, the skating ability of the players. Those are, those are three of the things that I think have really changed. The puck moving defense from the two-way center and the pace of the game. Talk about all these iconic players that, that once started off in some sort of form of junior hockey, most likely. I want to dive into the USHL a little bit. Uh, I know you're familiar with the league, uh, not just from broadcasting, but also your son, Ryan McGuire, has played eight games with the Madison Capitals in the USHL. What was your knowledge of the league before Ryan became a player and what, what stood out to you? Oh, I've, I've known him since I was a college coach and always respected the players that came out of the league. Um, the thing that stands out is the pace of the game. The pace of the game is unbelievably good. Uh, and the physicality of the league is outstanding. So those are two things that really stand out. And how tough the young men have to be. I mean, you're, you're on the bus, you know. Um, those are some long trips. And it's not always easy, especially in the middle part of winter. Um, so I, I really respect any of the young men that are playing out in that league. 
Um, it's, it's a tremendous league, but I think of all the great players that have played in that league over time that have eventually gone on to play in the NHL and be really good dominant players. You know, I think of Johnny Goodrow, uh, I think of Max Pacioretty, even though he didn't have a long career, I think about Louis LeBlanc and how well he played over time in the league. You know, I can keep going, but the biggest thing is so many good players have played in the league and done so well at the next level. From when you first had familiarity with the league to now, how much has it grown in the national spotlight and in the hockey world? There's a level of professionalism in the USHL now that maybe wasn't there when it first started. It grew, obviously. And um, I just, I was in your building in Dubuque uh, right around St. Patrick's Day. And I was just blown away whether how you carried yourself, Jack, or how the people around the building carried themselves. Uh, the level of play was fantastic. Um, the promotion, the in-house promotion, the in-game excitement. I, I was really excited. I was blown away by it. And, uh, you know, I've been to games in, in Youngstown. I've been to games in Madison. I've, I've been to games in a lot of places, Fargo. Um, I, I just think it's, it's really an interesting and awesome place. You have the NTDP as part of the USHL, which has churned out great player after great player. Phil Kessel, Patrick Kane, uh, Austin Matthews played there for a season. Clayton Keller uh, more recently, but then you also have a lot of these other teams. Uh, Waterloo Blackhawks are one that I think of immediately with Brock Besser and Joe Pavelski who played from them. I mean, can you give us a sense of, for people that might not know or even know the USHL, but can only think NTDP of just how many players are coming from these other teams? Yeah, no, well, Waterloo is one of the best because they have a guy that's amazingly professional in PK O'Hanley who runs their team. And, you know, I I got asked by PK probably three or four years ago around and talked to the team. And one of their top players at the time was Jack Drury, um, who's now playing at Harvard and was drafted in the second round by Carolina. And I coached his father. I'm dating myself now, but I coached his father in, in Hartford and I coached his father in Ottawa, Teddy. So I'm a big fan of the Drury family. Um, but no, there's so many franchises. I look at Chicago Steel uh, and what they're doing right now. And you know, look, we haven't had this summer's draft yet. At some point, we will have it, though, Jack. We will. And they're looking at, you know, two or three guys from their roster uh, who may go in the first or second round. You know, Sammy Colangelo is one of them that I think about an unbelievable goal scorer, a kid from the Massachusetts area that played at Lawrence Academy, plays for Chicago Steel now. And they're just loading up again for next year. I know they're getting a player by the name of Ian Moore, who's a Boston kid uh, who will probably be drafted in the second or third round in this summer's draft. And that's just one of them. But, you know, you look at it uh, going forward. I mean, the league just keeps getting better and better all the time. How much has the, the marriage of going to the USHL and then taking your path towards college hockey done for both growing the USHL, but also for growing college hockey as well? Oh, college hockey's gotten so much better because of it. You're getting more mature players that are playing and you see NHL teams aren't afraid to take older players now that maybe have been undrafted, that have come through the USHL route, you know, spent an extra year maybe in the USHL. They end up going to uh, you know, a good college team and then eventually sign as a free agent uh, out of a college. And I think the USHL has played a pretty significant role in that. I, you know, the best draft in NHL history is 2003. And I, I think of one of the better players you had who came out of your league at that time was David Backus. You know, and David Backus is a guy who was a third-round pick, I believe, in that draft. You'd have to go look it up, either late second or early third. And David's had just an amazing career. But I can tell you right now, if it's not for the USHL, he may never have had that career. So I, I think there's a lot to what you're talking about in terms of 
a marriage of between the USHL and college and how that's really helped college hockey a lot. Your son played in the USHL. Uh, he's going to play college hockey. And what, what's it been like to follow his hockey journey as a parent, having gone through a lot of the things he's going through right now? You know, I've tried to stay out of it. Um, I, I give him advice when he asks for it, but I work with him on the ice. So the, the only rule we have in our house, when we get to the rink, I'm not his father. I'm his coach. So you can't take it personal if I get mad at you. Um, and it, it's worked for us. It's worked really well. I get great pleasure watching him. I'm really proud of him. Um, he is going to spend one year in the British Columbia League. He's actually going to BC to play in Penticton next year. Um, and part of that was just because of he wanted to try that league. And the coach at the college where he is um, are going to be going at Colgate. They endorse that. So um, we're excited for him. But, it, yeah, no, it's I've been really proud to watch him grow as a player and grow as a person. Um, he hasn't had it easy. I mean, he's my son, and he gets a lot of lip service from a lot of guys around the league. That's okay. He's handled it really well. So that's been good, really good. Well, Pierre, we, we thank you for taking the time here today. I just have a couple more questions. Sure. I want to round back and finish this off with some NHL talk because, again, hopefully the season is starting up sooner rather than later. There's a plan in place. They're narrowing down host cities. They have a structure and a format. Uh, first question would be, when you found out that that was the structure they were going with, 24 teams, a massive tournament, what was your first thought about it all? Uh, I thought it was actually really smart. There's no perfect solution to what's going on right now, Jack, uh, with the coronavirus. And I thought that that was a really good compromise, both by the players and by the owners. Um, the fact that it was going to be a 24-team tournament, I thought was really good. Um, the fact that we we're going to see the top four seeds on both sides was very good. Um, so my biggest thing is we have to make sure that it's a safe environment for the players and for the coaches and for the trainers. And uh, so they're still trying to figure that out. But I do like the fact if we do come back, there'll be two pods. And I think Commissioner Bettman and Bill Daly have done a phenomenal job in the NHL side of it. And Donald Fear and Matthew Schneider and Glenn Healy have done a really good job from the Players Association side. So I think both sides should be really proud of what they figured out. Now, whether they can put it into play or not, comes down to the medical professionals, I think, more than anything else. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to move forward with the conversation like we're going to have a season because, as you know, when just talking with how the season ended, it changed in a matter of 24, 48 hours with the escalation of everything. But I know everyone is excited to hopefully get hockey back, so we have to uh, get that excitement bubbling just a little bit. When you looked at those matchups, what were a couple of those first round matchups that really stood out and you thought, "Hey, that's going to be a hell of a five game series." Chicago Edmonton is going to be an unbelievable series if they ever play it. I mean, those are two teams that probably well Chicago wasn't going to make the playoffs and Edmonton was touch and go uh, even though they're in the weakest division in the Pacific division they were touch and go to make it but they were they found a way to get in so I think that series because of the parity would be an amazingly tight and really fast-paced series Carolina New York will probably be the fastest paced series that'll be unbelievable with the Rangers and Carolina both those teams like to get up and go I wouldn't want to be in the Pittsburgh-Montreal series only because the, both those teams have players coming back and they're both going to get healthy. Jake Gensel, obviously a great USHL player coming back uh, after going to Nebraska-Omaha. Jake Gensel's healthy and ready to play for Pittsburgh. Um, but Carey Price is the goalie for Montreal, Jack. And a best three out of five, he could steal a series. So that, that would be a really tough series, very, very tough. Do you see any part of this – 
24 game series, the best of five. Do you see any part of this maybe inciting a, a conversation to do something different with the current playoff format, taking any portion of this and translating it to the current playoff format we have? The only thing I could see them doing is maybe reseeding, which is something they're doing here. I don't see us ever playing three out of five again. I think four out of seven works phenomenally well. Um, but I think that you could potentially see reseeding, uh, which would be, I think, probably the most uh, apropos way to go. But we'll see. Um, this is a one-off. I don't think we'll see this again, Jack. So it'll be, again, interesting to see long-term how it plays out. But I think this is a one-off kind of a situation. A couple final questions that relate to you being in between the bench during the games. Um, what's been one of the wackiest moments that you've, uh, you've been a part of in between the benches? Uh, right at the beginning, believe it or not, I got hit over the head with a stick. It was a game between the Rangers and the, Boston, and the Buffalo Sabres, excuse me, in Buffalo. And Rip Simonek has been with the Buffalo Sabres ever since they came into the league. He's a legendary trainer. And I got hit really hard. There was a collision uh, between two players, obviously a guy from New York and a guy from Buffalo. Alice Kotelik was a player from Buffalo. And uh, they hit me, oh, one of the two players hit me over the head with their stick. And I was bleeding really bad, really, really bad. And Rip goes, Pete, you're bleeding bad. I said, thanks, Rip. I, I can feel it. <laughs> he said, you need a towel. And I said, I put my talk button on and I called the truck and I said, listen, do not put me on camera. I'm going to finish the period. Um, but I'm, I'm bleeding pretty bad. I'm going to have to go in and get some stitches after the period. So I used the towel to keep the blood out of my eye, finished the period. Went into the Sabres dressing room. They couldn't have been better. The doctors there, and they stitched me up. Um, and it was, it was funny because the players were howling. You know, they were like, "Oh man, you're one of us." I said, "Oh, it's not the first time I've been hit, and it probably won't be the last." What percentage uh, of talk do you hear between the benches that has no place of ever being on a, a hockey broadcast? Uh, Percentage-wise, probably twenty to twenty-five percent that you just can't put out there. You can say they're having a discussion. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there's some bad stuff from time to time, no question. Who's, uh, who's one of the more colorful talkers between the benches? Well, Brad Marchand's pretty good. Maxime Lapierre, when he was in the league, was very good. Um, Yarko Rutu. Yarko Rutu is maybe one of the funniest guys ever uh, when it came to that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, I think about it now. Sean Avery was pretty good at it. Um, there's some guys that are really witty that, that never Kachuk in Calgary, Matthew Kachuk is phenomenal at it, but, uh, you know, Marshan's probably the most colorful, but he's toned it down a lot over the last couple of years. I'll be honest with you. He's toned it down. And final question, as we're wrapping up this interview, you do plenty of interviews between the benches. Who are a couple of your all time favorite guys to interview? I like Joel Quenville with Chicago when he was there, especially in a lot of the big games, Mike Babcock with Detroit. Uh, was outstanding to deal with. Alain Vigneault has always been very, very good to deal with. Um, Brent Sutter, when he was – he had a short run, but Brent was was good. John Tortorella, you never know what you're going to get with John. Uh, so he'd be another one that would be colorful. Um, we don't do a lot of player interviews. We do mostly the coaches. So after games with players, um, one of the most thoughtful, I think, would have been Brad Richards. Uh, he, he's outstanding interview. Patrice Bergeron is very, very good. They're, they're more good players than bad when it comes to interviews, to be honest. Well, Pierre, thanks so much for taking the time today to do this interview. And we hope to see you back between the benches here 
with the NHL restart plan moving forward. We just don't know when it will fully solidify, but we hope to see some hockey here sooner rather than later. Jack, I've really had a good time chatting with you. Thanks very much. And you're well on your way to having a real good career. I've really enjoyed listening to some of your broadcasts. So keep up the good work, Jack. Thank you. Appreciate it, Pierre. Thank you. Yep. We hope you enjoyed that interview with Pierre Maguire between the bench analyst for NBC. Uh, both excited, as you could hear in our, our talk about the possibility of hockey coming back here soon. A, a great interview. And we really thank Pierre for taking the time to do that interview with us. And one of the things we, we talked about in that interview, because we could not talk about it, is the the 2014 playoff that, again, has been solidified as the format that the NHL would come back with, but there's no guarantee that it happens uh, until it actually happens. But they have the matchup set up. They have the seating doled out. Everything is ready to go for that play-in round, and that's what we're going to be looking at right now. You have eight different matchups, and a lot of them are some really, really good, really exciting matchups for various reasons. So what we're going to do right now is just look at a couple of the top matchups uh, that, that we're looking forward to, pick a couple each, and just discuss why we really like those matchups. Because right now with the, the seeding the way that it is, you have some, some higher-seeded teams that I think aren't necessarily favored but have a very good chance to jump into that second round over some of these lower-seeded teams. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I think the, the real the real wild card in all this is um, you really don't know who's in good shape or who's been, uh, you know, who's going to come together the quickest and, you know, and put together a, a good run. You know, it, a lot of it is what kind of chemistry can you develop so quickly and what kind of chemistry have you been developing while you've been on hiatus for the last three months? Well, it'll actually be four months by the time they really start playing so playing games uh so it's going to be real difficult and you know i think the big key is going to be who can get out of the gates real quick and and uh and and get a get on a run and, and win some series so jim why don't you start uh i'm sure we might have some overlap here but we'll talk about three or four series that that really excite us why don't you start maybe the number one series when you're looking at this bracket the one that stands out the most that said if i could only watch one i'd watch hopefully all five games of this one. Yeah, you know, I kind of, I'm looking at uh, Calgary against Winnipeg in that first round series. Uh, Calgary is the eighth seed and Winnipeg's the number nine seed. You know, Calgary is a team that's been kind of on the cusp a little bit. And, you know, you want to see if they've been on the cusp of maybe breaking through, but they really haven't done as much as we would like. And then Winnipeg's a team that's been, uh, on a different kind of cusp, they've been a team that's been kind of a Stanley cup contender for the last few years. So, um, and you know, I want to watch it because of Johnny Goudreau, obviously, and, and uh, see what kind of, uh, what kind of run he can go on. But uh, that's, that's the first series that I I'm really intrigued by. And uh, I'd like to see, uh, like to see some uh, exciting Canadian hockey in the first round. Yeah, it's a, it's a good matchup. And, you know, this would be the year that a Canadian team would win it all, wouldn't, wouldn't it? And then everyone could immediately throw an asterisk by the a yeah. team winning it all and saying it doesn't really count because of the the shortened season. Um, the, the one I like at right away is uh, I like Columbus and Toronto. And this is one that if I were making a bracket, I would probably go back and forth with on, on who I would think is going to win it. Because I think Toronto is one of these teams in, in a different playoff 
format like the one this year that if they get hot in this playoff game, they have so much offensive talent that they can run through that first round pretty easily and then continue their trend moving upwards. Um, but Columbus is a team that is always tough to play. They have uh, a completely contrasted style to that of Toronto, where Toronto's run and gun, high flying offense, and Columbus, you know, some some good structural defense um, with that John Tortorella coach team. So I, I just like the contrasting styles in this game, and I, I really think it's a flip of the coin because Columbus is a team that might have uh, been a little bit surprising in a positive way to their fans the last couple of years in the playoffs, especially last year sweeping the Tampa Bay Lightning. And Toronto has been a disappointment in a lot of ways in the playoffs. Their fans have expected more out of them, and they haven't gotten a lot. So that's just interesting contrast of styles and interesting contrast of playoff expectations for those two teams. Um, I think I would pick Toronto in a close series, but that one's a really interesting one to me. Yeah, I, yeah I, Toronto's a team that uh, you kind of feel for uh, feel for that organization. They've had so much struggles. You know, going, they haven't won a cup since 1967, and you know they've had uh, you know it's been actually a train wreck for a lot of years. But uh, they do have some really nice young talent in that group, and Austin Matthews obviously is you know one of the premier talents in the in the NHL and you know I think this is a year where the NHL would really want to see that yet prime young talent on a, on a huge stage uh, and that'd be it'd be huge for all those young stars in Toronto to get that opportunity this year looking at the each bracket you have uh, a three double digit seeds on both side if you were to take a pick of which double digit seed you think would make the deepest run who would you pick Oh boy, I uh, you know I, I really like Arizona. I think Arizona's been kind of a surprise team. They're the uh, number eleven seed in the West, but they go against Nashville, and I don't think that's a very very good matchup. So uh, I'd like to see them go on a run, but I think really, uh, boy, I'm I, I'm going to go with Arizona. I think I, I think that's the team that. Uh, like I said, they had a, they got out of the gates really really strong in the back in the, back in September and October, and uh, I think they were a good solid team. And I think if they can replicate that here in this short playoff series, I think they have a good shot. And I think Nashville's a little bit of an older team, mm -hmm. so maybe the fresher legs with Arizona might have a chance to to pull an upset in that first round series. Yeah, I like the 11 seed too. I'm just going to go with the Rangers on the other side. And maybe it's a biased pick because I am a well-documented New York Rangers fan. But uh, I truly believe with the top-end talent they have in the goaltending that they can make it difficult for a lot of teams. And especially, I, I give them not a little more than just a slight edge in that first-round series. Even though Carolina is a much higher seed, I think the Rangers' goaltending is much better than Carolina's goaltending. And this is like the five-game series in baseball where I often lend the, uh, or give the advantage to the team with better pitching. I'm going to give the advantage to the team with better goaltending a lot in these first series. And the Rangers, I think, have much better goaltending than Carolina, regardless of if you're throwing Lundqvist, uh, Igor Shostorkin, or Alexander Georgiev in net for the Rangers. The best you're getting from Carolina is Peter Morazic. And I think that's going to be a big advantage, New York Rangers. So I, I like the Rangers because I think they can make pretty quick work of their first round matchup because of that goaltending. And then the goaltending with the 
the team coming out of the first round having played in some competitive games, I think that's going to be an advantage in the second round, and you're going to see a decent amount of upsets because even though all those top four seeds on either side are playing, they're not playing in games that are necessarily as meaningful as the other teams. The other teams are playing for their playoff lives, and those top four are just playing for seeding, which doesn't really matter much in the NHL due to the parity of the league. So I think we're going to see a lot of second-round upsets due to the fact that those teams are playing in meaningful games in the first round. Yeah, and I think uh, uh, to your point about good, good goaltending, I think uh, I'll go maybe a little bit step further on good goaltending. I think the teams with the really good, with the outstanding young goaltenders, I think are going to be the ones that have the, the chance to make that upset. You know, I, I think uh, the younger guys are going to, I think they'll they'll round their game off a little bit quicker. You see older goaltenders, maybe like a Henrik Lundqvist, you know, it might take him a little bit longer to to find his A game. But I think the young goaltenders, like the other two that you mentioned for the Rangers, I think they have a chance to uh, to get up to their top form a little bit quicker than uh, than an older goaltender. So I think those that's where I would look. I would look if you have a good young elite goaltender. I think those are the guys that I'd be uh, nervous about. Yeah, it's now looking at those. I want to get into the top four teams as as well because you have Boston, Tampa, Washington, and the Flyers on the Eastern Conference side. And then you have St. Louis, the Avalanche, the Vegas Golden Knights, and the Dallas Stars on the, the Western Conference side. Give me the team that you feel – I think we talked about favorites a while back, but give me the team out of those four that on either side that you feel is most likely to be the team that's upset the first time they play in a playoff game this year. Um, I'm probably going to go with uh... – Philadelphia in the East. I, I just I don't know that it, the the other the other teams in the in that uh, in those top eight. I think they're a little bit more seasoned and a little bit more. Uh, they've been there before, so I think they're uh, a better a better opportunity. That those are the those are the games that I think I'm really looking forward to the most. You know, because it's a round robin. You know, you play three games against the other three top teams in your in your conference. And I think that's where you're going to see some outstanding hockey. And again, I, I think there's really not as much to lose because even if you're the fourth seed, you're still, you know, you're still going to have technically home ice in that second round series. But I think that's where you're going to see a lot of fun hockey against the, the, the top eight elite teams uh, playing round Robin again in within their conference. I think that's where the best hockey is going to be in that first round. Yeah. I, I like, you know, I, I was, Looking at these teams, Philly seems like the obvious pick to be upset in the first round to me, but I actually like Philadelphia in this weird restart to the season because Carter Hart uh, is one of the best new goalies in the NHL, and they've got a lot of young players that might be able to get back up to game speed quicker than, than some of these other teams, and a team I look at that is the complete opposite to that is Boston, and as good as Boston's regular season was, they do have a lot of veterans. But the other thing is, I, I do think that Boston was a little bit overrated in the regular season. As, as good as they were, as much talent as they have, I do think Boston was one of the more overrated teams in the regular season, simply because they had 12 overtime losses. Other than the Blue Jackets, who had 15, uh, I believe that Boston had the most overtime losses in the league. And so that accounts for a lot of points that bump them up in the standings 
But if you look at the losses, I mean, they have 26 total when you're not looking at overtime and the regulation split. Philadelphia only had two more. Washington only had two more. Pittsburgh only had three more. Tampa Bay only had two more. So Boston wasn't much better than any of those teams. They just did a lot of their losing after regulation. And so when I look at that, I, I find a team that I don't necessarily think is as good as those standings might suggest. And with that veteran leadership, I'm going to take Boston being the team that's upset in the first round. Um, and then in the Western Conference, I, I just don't think Dallas necessarily has the same caliber of team that the other top four do. Uh, I think uh, St. Louis, as, as much as you thought they might have a Stanley Cup hangover, they're an even better team than they were last year, at least up to this point. Uh, the Vegas Golden Knights, I, I think a lot of talent and probably haven't even played their best hockey yet this season. Colorado was a team that was starting to worry me because of all their injuries, but they're only two points worse than the St. Louis Blues when the season paused, and they're getting all those players back now healthy. Uh, the Dallas Stars are the, the lowest seed there, and I think rightfully so. They're, they're definitely the team that's the weakest of those four. So I'd take the, the Bruins and the Dallas Stars are the two that I see going out in the, the top, those top four teams. Yeah, so who do you have uh, winning the whole thing? Uh, you know, the Rangers, right? No, I, <laughs> I, I wish I could make that pick. I did. I was actually listening to a, a podcast and they said once the, the mystery team was announced as the one to get the number one pick, they said, if there's one team in this playoff format that almost has an equal chance to win the Stanley cup and to get the number one pick, it's the New York Rangers. Cause yeah. they, they definitely could lose in the first round to Carolina um, but they do have a lot of talent and some good goaltending to make a deep run. Uh, if I had to go gut feeling, and this is, this is a total gut feeling, I would go with the Tampa Bay Lightning. Um, I think that they have the right mix of youth to get their team back up to speed quick enough and the right mix of veteran leadership that will be able to combat with this, the wacky restart and, and all the, the humps and bumps that have happened over the last couple months and are inevitably going to happen down the stretch in a postseason battle. And it just feels like Tampa Bay is due um, with, with all the success that they've had in the playoffs but unable to, to get over the hump. This was the one year where they were starting to get hot. It felt like when Washington won the Cup in 2018, a team that had so much success, and then you kind of signed sign them off and felt like they were never going to do it. Now Tampa Bay seems to be overlooked just a little bit and I think this is the year that they're going to do it. Um, so Tampa Bay would be my, my gut pick, I think. Yeah, I, I kind of, uh, you know, we haven't had a repeat any Stanley Cup champion in, in several years. I think this might be a, a year where St. Louis could do it. You know, I think that that's a, it's a situation where, you know, it's hard to win Stanley Cup two years in a row. But if you have a year like this where you have a, a four-month break, you know, a, a chance to restart, you know, I think that that's, uh, that's kind of the scenario that uh, would really benefit a team like the St. Louis Blues, one of the best, you know, obviously the number one seed in the Western Conference right now. And, you know, they've been, I, I do think they're better than they were last year. Um, but I think that reset, that chance to catch your breath, I think that's going to benefit them too. So I think, uh, I think that's a team that really I would uh, be willing to put some money on. Yeah. And, and I, I, you know, I think Tampa Bay is, Again, gut feeling for me, but if you if I actually had to mark it down completely, I'm I'm gonna pick Colorado because I'll have to find the audio if I still can. That was my pick 
all the way back. Yeah, it was. When we picked the teams to win the Stanley Cup, Colorado was my pick to win it all. So I'm going to, since they're still well in contention, I'm going to have to still go with them. But um, if I had to make the official pick, but, but for the purposes of this show and just looking at the bracket, Tampa Bay standing out just for the, the fact that they feel like a team that's overdue and this would be the year that they would be able to do it with everything wacky that's going on. Uh, but, but interesting playoff matchups, a lot that a lot of those first round matchups that I'm just really excited for. Um, and I think partly because they're good matchups, partly because we haven't had hockey in four months. So yeah. it'll be something to look forward to. Um, but as we wrap up the show, dive away from the NHL playoffs a little bit and go to some other NHL news that uh, has a, a fighting saint twist to it. And this came out earlier uh, this week, or excuse me, I believe last week on Friday, uh, a former scout for the fighting saints, Jeremiah Crow was actually named as the director of scouting for the Buffalo Sabres. And it was just last week on the podcast that we were talking about the, the players development in the USHL, but also development everywhere else. And this is a perfect example of someone that was scouting for the fighting saints about five or six years ago. And now he's the director of scouting for a Buffalo team that you know, hopefully for them is uh, on the, the rebound and, and starting things off with a new staff and Crow is the one to lead them on the scouting side. Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a neat uh, a neat thing. He's only 34 years old. He played at Clarkson, um, but uh, I think what in reading a lot about him, I I don't know that I I ever met him when he was in Dubuque. He did a lot of stuff uh, more behind the scenes when he was in Dubuque. But uh, in reading about him, it seems like a really intriguing hire for the Buffalo Sabers. You know, he's he's a guy who looks at. Uh, he looks at analytics. He looks at evaluating players and in different ways. And I think it's he's, uh, you know, he's really a, the new wave of, of scouting in the NHL. And he was one of the guys, probably one of the most instrumental guys, in picking that national team development program from a couple of years ago that just dominated the first round of the NHL draft. You know, he was one of the guys – He and he was picking these guys out when they were 16 years old and uh, assembling that team in, uh, in, uh, in Plymouth, Michigan to, that went on and really dominated, like I said, the, uh, the NHL draft with Jack Hughes going over on number one. Uh, so I think uh, he obviously has a great eye for talent and he's a guy who's, uh, you know, who could really make a difference with the Buffalo Sabres. Yeah. Big news for, for Crow. And again, uh, just another, another, not just player, not just coach, but now a staff member with Fighting Saints ties, again, making waves in the, um, the NHL ranks. And then the final bit of news, a, a former Fighting Saints staff member as well, Dan Lev was named the executive of the year in the USHL recently, and he's the only two-time recipient of the award. He was uh, named one year when he was with the Fighting Saints uh, and, and I know everyone that I've talked to who was working under Dan with the Fighting Saints, uh, Casey White, Zach Fish, who's now with the Hershey Bears, but they only have great praise for Dan. So it's good to see him continue his success elsewhere. Yeah, you know, he uh, actually came from a baseball background. He was with the uh, St. Paul Saints uh, professional team up in uh, Minnesota and did a lot of, he was part of uh, the Gold Clang uh, group, which owns minor league baseball teams around the country. and. You know, he's got a lot of really innovative thoughts on uh, promoting sports. And he did a really nice job when he was in Dubuque and 
you know, he went to Chicago and in Chicago at the time that he uh, took over uh, as president over there was a team that would really didn't draw very well. And, and on the ice, they had mixed results. And, you know, in the last, the last few years, I, I think he joined them in 2015, 16, um, when, uh, when the, the, uh, the steel changed ownership, he, uh, they really helped develop that program on and off the ice and uh, they're drawing better. Obviously they're one of the elite programs, not just in the USHL, but in, in North American hockey in terms of the, the on ice product. Uh, so it's been, uh, you know, it's been kind of fun to see him uh, oversee that in Chicago kind of wish he was still in Dubuque sometimes, but, uh, but yeah, he's done a really nice job over there and overseeing that and, and taking the steel in the right direction. And so Dan Lev, the executive of the year in the USHL, uh, fighting saints again with plenty of awards themselves, but good to see a former fighting saint continue to have his success at the USHL ranks. That's all the time we have for the show. Thanks for joining us once again next week. We mentioned success uh, at the professional ranks for uh, former fighting saints. We'll be joined by a uh, goalie coach, in the Los Angeles Kings organization in Matt Millar. He's our interview next week, so look forward to that interview with Matt Millar, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Fighting Saints Report.